Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio I know we had some words last time But that was so long ago I got your message It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow Welcome to Starship Sofa Part of the District of Wonders network Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders Come and find yours this is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 715. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have an Asimov's science fiction story, yes, an original that appeared in Asimov's in 2015. Let's just jump straight into it. So the main fiction is The Unveiling by Christopher Rowe. Christopher Rowe's stories have been printed, reprinted and translated around the world and he has been a finalist for many awards including the Hugo Nebula and the World Fantasy Award. He lives in Lexington, Kentucky with his wife and many pets. And like I say, this story originally appeared in Asimov's science fiction in January 2015. The story is narrated by Drew Mallory. Drew is a professor of organisational psychology and management coach in Bangkok, where he studies workers with unique backgrounds and needs. In addition to his work with neurodivergent, queer and disabled people, Drew spends his time in his rooftop garden, saving green things from a dry death and accompanied, like any good psychologist, by his pet rats. You can learn more about him and his work at coachwithdrew.today. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Unveiling by Christopher Rowe. The sky was the color of a robin's egg, and like a robin's egg, it was mottled and imperfect. Ash from old vice's constant low-grade eruptions mixed with the complex hydrocarbons of industrial smokes. The word pollution was forbidden by gubernatorial edict. With the effluvia of the thousands of transports uplifting daily to low orbit, and even with naturally occurring clouds, high scudding cirrus following the wake of the continental jet stream, and low, ominous thunderheads piling up in the sunset west. It was these last that attracted Tane's attention as his crew worked to scour bird droppings and other less clearly identifiable grime from the pedestal supporting a statue of some hero from the last war. The statue, and a dozen others that were more or less identical to Tane's eyes, was set atop the tor overlooking the seaport. Another just upslope, 
and concealed under roped-down tarps was to be dedicated the next day. The whole sculpture garden had to be gleaming for the dignitaries who would be in attendance for the speeches and the drinking. Lizane walked up, returning from the crew's van, burdened with another bulky canister of the muriatic acid they were using to clean the monuments. She followed his gaze west to the clouds and spat to one side. Rain'll just bring grit, she said. We'll be out of here in the morning, doing this all over again. Precipitation on Castleton was never clean, and fell gray instead of the white of other, cleaner worlds. Castleton hail melted away to leave toxic sand dusting the roadways and rooftops, and Castleton rain, stinging more from its chemical content than from its tumultuous fall, left behind a thin patina of slick brown sludge that coated everything it touched. Work order is to clean these up tonight, he said. We're down to Waterside in the morning, moving freight. Lizane curled her nose. Freight, she said. You mean we'll be loading a garbage scow. Tain's crew was free-floating and unspecialized. They reported to Municipal Hall at the beginning of every six-day work week, where Tain received a list of jobs that needed doing, inevitably dirty, and sometimes even dangerous. The work didn't pay enough for lodging any better than a room in the city dormitories downwind of the fish-packing plant, but it paid just enough for a few drinks at week's end, and most of Tain's crew lacked the imagination or drive to want anything more than that. As for Tain himself, well, he'd wanted more once, but now, in his early forties, he'd learned to settle for what he had. As he usually did when melancholy overtook him, Tain ran his hands through the fringe of graying black hair on the side of his head. Thick as the calluses on his fingers were, he could still feel the diamond-shaped scar there. He realized Lizane was still standing next to him, expecting a reply. At least tomorrow's sixth day, he said. Just half a shift in the stink. But it wasn't to be just the six hours of work a half shift would have required— as Lizane had more or less predicted, an automated call came over the Vox an hour before dawn, letting Tane know that his crew was needed back up at the statuary garden and that their hours shoveling on the docks were pushed to after the meal break. It's overtime anyway, he told each of his crew members in turn when he reached them. For one or two, this meant a call over the Vox to the same sort of communal hall phone that the word had come to him by. For most of them, though, it meant rousting them out in person from the bunkhouses along the river, enduring the curses of a dozen or a hundred others housed in the warehouse-like barracks. Tane made it a point to learn the favored bunks of all his workers for days just like this, when he had to pick his way through the dark and dank to find them and tell them of a change in the schedule. He made it a point, too, to know where to find the last few of them, Lizane, among their number, who refused to bed down in the communal bunkhouses for reasons they hadn't shared with Tane. So with just a half-hour left before he should be starting the van at the muster point, he found himself walking down a narrow alley full of cardboard squats and canvas lean-tos, his jacket open to show he wore the garb of a laboring man, his hands held wide to show he carried no weapons. He found Lizanne already awake, brewing something foul-smelling in a tin coffee pot over a great lane across a cut-off drum. 
Ashes spilled out around the corroded drum's bottom rim where it rested on the rotted asphalt of the alley, telling Tane that it had been used as a fireplace for a long time. Lizane was squatting, sitting on her heels, chewing on a ration bar. She didn't look surprised to see him and mutely offered him a cup of the black stuff she poured from the coffee pot. He shook his head. It's like you said, he told her, back up to those statues. She nodded and drank. No garbage, scow? Tane took a careful squat himself, mindful of putting a hand down on the filthy ground. Docks in the afternoon, so overtime. Most of the others on the crew had greeted this news with grumblings. They could all use the extra scrip, but the way payroll was managed for municipal contractors, they wouldn't see it for weeks. For today, it just meant no afternoon off, which meant being too exhausted, probably, to have much of a six-day night. Tane didn't think Lizanne ever had much of a six-day night. She just shrugged and leaned back, hooked her jacket out from the pile of clothing in the closest lean-to. The pile moved and growled. Tane caught a brief glimpse of the scar-faced man Lizanne lived with. She'd never mentioned his name, and Tane had never asked. The van wouldn't start. It's the fuel cell again, said Hap. Hap, tallest in the crew, skinniest and most nervous, had somehow once again won his way into the passenger seat in the complicated game of thrown fingers the crew used to determine who rode up front with Tane. The game was supposed to yield random winners, but Hap won far too often for true randomness and for Tane's taste. Hap talked too much to be a welcome companion in the forward compartment early mornings. Fuel cells charged, said Tane, but he knew that Hap meant the worn coupling that connected the cell to the intake pump was fouled again. Tane sighed. Tell the others what's going on. For all that the van systems were supposedly designed for easy use and maintenance, the fuel cell coupling was perversely hard to get to. Tane had the choice of either using the bulky hydraulic jacks built into the undercarriage to raise the front of the van clear of the garage floor or half clamoring into the engine compartment and leaning in to work from the top. If he did the latter, he would be working by feel alone because there was no line of sight to the coupling from above. He remembered the last time they'd used the jack when they'd thrown a track crawling up one of the seaport's older cobbled streets. A seal had blown on one fully extended jack, spraying everyone with hydraulic fluid, and the bulk of the van had settled down on the street, Lizane barely scrambling out from beneath in time to avoid being crushed. He decided to work by feel. So they arrived at the statuary garden an hour later than scheduled, all of them anxious to make up the lost time, no one wanting to be shoveling aboard a scow when the evening tide came in and the deck started bucking with the waves. As they pulled through the ornate iron gate, Tane looked over the pair of marble statues, winged warriors of some kind, flanking the entrance. These were the ones they'd spent the most time on the day before and had left gleaming. They were still gleaming, all right, not from the crew's polishing job, but from the slick coat of brown sludge that the thunderstorms had draped over the city. Tane felt a headache building from the amount of work they had ahead of them. Someone else is here, boss. Hap said, pointing to the top of the garden. A personal transport was parked haphazardly across the gravel lane, running below the tarped-over statue. 
The running panels of the transport were ostentatiously white, and the vehicle had obviously not been parked out of doors the night before. Everything about it spoke of wealth and privilege. Can only mean trouble, right, boss? said Hap. Tane answered with a noncommittal grunt, even though he agreed. He eased the van into the same spot beside the maintenance shed they'd used the day before and set the brake. Get everybody out and going, he said. Start with those angels or whatever they are, closest to the gate. If I'm not back when those are done, do whatever Lizane says. He considered digging out some hand cleaner for the van's supply bay before he walked up to the transport, but then decided not to take the time, despite the fact that his hands were filthy from cleaning out the coupling. He figured the car's occupant was probably somebody from the municipal authority and so unlikely to offer to shake his hand anyway. He was proven wrong on both accounts. A slightly built older man, dressed in a smart morning coat over the twill one-piece of the artisan class, was on his knees at the base of the new statue, making a poor job of untying the ropes that held down the tarps. His fine clothes were covered with the muck running off the canvas, and when he looked up at Tane, the man even had a smear of brown running from his creased forehead back over his pale bald pate. The man's thin face lit up with a broad smile when he saw Tane. I mean no offense, sir, he said, when I tell you that you look like someone who's better equipped to get this piece uncovered than I am. The voice was as unexpected as everything else about the situation. The man's accent wasn't just cultured, it was off-world cultured. Maybe even earth-cultured. Tane said, Our work order is for cleaning all these others. That one was covered up pretty well. It's probably fine. When he said our, the other man furrowed his bushy white eyebrows and peered myopically down the garden. Look at that. There's a whole gang of you. Gang meant something very specific in the port, and Tane winced. We're a civic work crew, sir he said, deciding that the man was definitely an off-worlder, or, at the very least, new to the city. We've got a ticket this morning to get the garden cleaned up for. He hesitated, trying to remember if the work order had used some official-sounding word for the afternoon ceremony. For the unveiling, he finished awkwardly. Well, that's fine, said the old man. Though, to be perfectly honest, most of these pieces won't be particularly improved by cleaning. A lot of dreary, pompous, celebratory stuff, isn't it? Unexamined patriotism bordering on jingoism, that sort of thing. Tane worked a minute to unpack what the man had just said. After a moment, he said, They take sedition pretty seriously around here, sir. The man waved that off and picked at the mess he'd made of the rope's master knot. I've said worse, and they've still hired me for this commission, he said. And back to what I was saying, you'll surely agree that it's most important that this piece be clean and ready. Can't we just have a peek to make sure none of this filth got through the wrappings? Tane glanced down at the gate and saw that Lazane had the crew divided into two teams, tackling the angels. She'd assigned them exactly as he would have, splitting up the people who wouldn't stand each other and people who got along too well, preventing fights before they started and lollygagging as well. 
He unsnapped the cover of the holster at his belt where he kept his multi-tool and pulled it out, unfolding the utility blade. He nodded at the ropes and said, That's not going to get untangled anytime soon. Grasping his intentions, the old man smiled again and said, The Alexandrian solution. Excellent. Then he hesitated and added, Alexander the Great, an old general, found a knot that couldn't be untied in a place called Phrygia. And so he... Tane kept his utility blade sharpened to a very keen edge. He sliced through the ropes with a single pass. I know what the Gordian knot was, he said, interrupting the man. Even laborers on Castleton go to school, until they're sixteen, at any rate. The old man pursed his lips. They must be very excellent schools, he said. Tane shrugged and started pulling the tarps down. Not really. But the libraries are all right. The sculpture was of the previous governor, a woman who had ruled Castleton, its moons, and its outlying stations when Tane was a boy. She was remembered for putting down a rebellion on the western continent, for reforming the tax code, and for patronizing the arts. At least that's what it said on the bronze plate, bolted to the base of the statue. Tane mainly remembered her for the draconian anti-gang policies that had been enforced during the latter part of her administration. He touched the scar on the back of his head again as he gazed up at the outside marble face three meters above. I suppose it's a good enough likeness, he said. The old man tutted. Hardly the point, sir, but thanks, nonetheless. Tane looked over at him. What is the point, then? The old man drew himself up, and an arch look came to his face. He opened his mouth to speak, but then suddenly deflated, and smiled again. The point, sir, is unexamined patriotism bordering on jingoism, as we established earlier. Which is what pays my bills and leaves me time for my own work. I knocked this out in two weeks, if you must know. Tane knew all about make-work, about doing things just to pay the bills. Why are you out here this morning, then? he asked. Why do you care if a little rain got on the statue before the mayor and the rest of them see it? The man, Tane supposed he should think of him as the sculptor, didn't immediately answer. He was slowly circling the plinth the statue stood upon, kicking his way through the fallen canvas. He stopped on the upland side, opposite of where Tane stood, and said, This, I'm out here this morning checking for something like this. Curious, Tane circled up to stand behind the sculptor, keeping clear of the tarps. The old man was pointing up at a black rune, scorched into the marble at the base of the statue. It almost looked like a brand had been burned into the governor's marble foot, Tane recognized the rune. Security services, he said. That just means they've checked the statue for... I don't know what, really. But I suppose there are going to be a lot of important people here later. The man turned to face Tane. He had an unpleasant sneer on his face now. Important people, yes. Well, that's relative. He reached up and ran his fingers across the rune. 
a literal stamp of authority, he murmured. How unimaginative. Tain supposed the man was upset about what could be seen as a defacement of his work. But why do you care? You said this was a knockout job, didn't you? They won't pay you any less just because some arbitrator in customs followed some regulation. The old man threw a sharp look at Tain, but then smiled again. Tain was starting to wonder just what the smiles meant. Customs, he said, because you know that this piece and me, its maker, must have come from off-world, and I took such trouble to adopt the appropriate dress. He swept a hand down and out, displaying his artisan's wear. But of course, he continued, I haven't been here long enough to pick up on the subtleties of the local argot. Tain said, You've got a lot more work to do than just changing clothes and mimicking an accent if you want to pass for a local. You don't act anything like Castletonborn. You're too clean, for one thing. Even the quality people have ash in their skin here. It would take you years to pass. The sculptor nodded. Years? I don't have, alas. I'm only here a few days, just long enough for this ridiculous ceremony. Though I hope to see the famous volcano, of course. Old Vice was a hundred kilometers inland from the port, part of the coastal mountain chain that separated the city from the sparsely inhabited interior. The caldera was said to be spectacular, the largest on any world, and flights over it were a popular, if dangerous, activity. Tain didn't know anyone who'd ever taken such a trip. Though he'd once seen the volcano from a distance, back when he first hired on with the municipal authority years before, one of the very first jobs he'd ever drawn was a scheduled maintenance check on the funicular that ran up to a civil guard post overlooking the port from a nearby peak. It was still the farthest Tain had ever been from the city proper, and he could still remember the views inland across the mountains and out across the alkaline ocean. They say it's something to see, Tain told the man. Look, I need to get back to my crew, and we should probably cover your statue back up. If it's going to be unveiled later, then I'm guessing it's supposed to be veiled when the dignitaries get here? The old man waved a dismissive hand. Don't trouble yourself. The veil will be a silken drop cloth attached to a line. That way, whichever plutocrat is in charge will be able to pull it off with a suitably dramatic fashion without the bother of ropes and rough canvas. Tain hesitated. Well, he said after a moment's consideration, you know more about it than me, certainly. But listen, I can't take responsibility if there's some kind of trouble over it being uncovered. Again, a dismissive wave. Go, go scrub the muck off all these wastes of marble and granite. If anyone asks, I'll tell them I pulled off the canvas on my own, just the sort of eccentric behavior one expects from an artist and an off-worlder, yes? With that, he seemed to lose interest in conversing with Tane. He pulled a fist-sized tin with a hinge top from one pocket and a broad-bladed putty knife from another. When he opened the tin, Tane saw that it contained a white spackle, the exact shade of the marble statue. Whistling tunelessly, the sculptor set about obscuring the blackened rune. 
Clad in rubberized coveralls and heavy boots, wearing respirators that had been in service for too long, the crew loaded steaming garbage onto the scow. Tane drove a skid steer loader checked out from the port authority, humping up piles of municipal detritus at the edge of the dock that half his crew then shoveled over the railing into the open deck conveyance below. The others were down there, shifting and sorting with pitchforks, making sure that the load was evenly distributed and hoping for the odd piece of salvage, unlikely as that was. Tane estimated that they were maybe a third of the way through the job when they all heard the explosion roll down over the city. Tane lowered the bucket of the loader and cut the power, clamoring out of the machine as quickly as he could. Hap and the others working topside came trotting over, pulling off their respirators and babbling to one another. Gas main? asked Hap, speaking to the group in general. Those kinds of accidents weren't unheard of in the city, at least in the parts where underground mains hadn't been properly maintained in years, the parts of the city where they all lived. But no, it was up in the heights, said Tane. And, as he started to put it together, Lizane and the rest from down on the scow topped the dock, climbing up from below along the rope hawser netting. He saw the look of fear on Lizane's face and knew that she was making the same guess as he was. "'What time is it?' Tane asked. The others looked at one another in confusion for a moment, and Tane said again, "'What time?' shouting now. "'1630,' said Hap. "'1645, something like that. Why?' They were all up there, said Lizane. They said the governor was going to be there, the mayors of all the settlements. Who knows who all? Sirens were whining in the distance now, emergency service crews making their way up the hill. A thick plume of yellow and gray smoke rose inland. Even if they don't blame us, Lizane began, and Tane cut her off. We're done. We're all done, he said, thinking fast. He rubbed his hands across the back of his head, thinking about the questioning techniques of the municipal arbitrators, thinking that the questions from the planetary authorities would be even worse. "'What are you two talking about?' whined Hap. Tane could see that he wasn't alone in his confusion. "'Fool!' said Lizane. "'Look where the smoke is coming from. Think about where we were this morning and why we were there!' Hap looked vaguely toward the column of smoke, the explosion was in the sculpture garden we cleaned out? He asked. Then realization dawned on his face. Gods, do you think they're all dead? Tane said, I think we'll find out soon enough. I think we'll find out soon enough. We'll all be put to the question. But we don't know anything, said Hap. Tane thought about the sculptor. I do, he said. I know that none of you saw anything. So when they come, just tell them that, and tell them that you saw me up at the statue with a stranger. There was a brief moment of silence. Then Lizane said, It won't matter. They'll still take us all in, and those of us with the wrong kinds of records. She meant herself. Hell, she meant him. Give me your work, Chet, he told her. Tain, she said as soft as he'd ever heard her say anything, but she pulled the chit from where it hung on the leather cord around her neck. He took it, stalked over to the edge of the dock, and dropped it into the scow. You weren't at work today, he said. Who else could I not find this morning? The crew looked at one another, figuring their chances. 
Two others pulled off their chits and handed them over. So go to ground, Tane told those two and Lizane. Get out of the city if you can, and if they catch you, just tell them exactly what happened and why. You were afraid of the authorities, and I told you to run. Easy, right? Lizane was already stripping off her work boots. She spat. Easy. Sure. But why run at all? shouted Hap. Why would they blame us? Tane said, because they'll have to blame somebody, and we're available. Lizane gave him an intense, unreadable look that Tane supposed was a kind of goodbye. Then she and the other two all headed off that Tane supposed was a kind of goodbye. Then she and the other two all headed different directions. The rest of you can wait here or head home. If I were you, I'd find a bar and enjoy a drink. It'll be the last one you have for a while. Tane walked over and sat on the bucket of the loader. What are you going to do? asked Hap as the rest of the crew drifted aimlessly away. Tane started pulling off his boots. I'm going to think up a story. When the arbitrators came a half an hour later, Tane sneered at them and said, How many did I get? The Scarface man climbed down the scaffolding, clearly unfamiliar with the light spin-induced gravity this deep in the station. Twenty or so people were gathered in the dark, confined space, watching him in silence. Finding a place to stand where they could all see him, he took a long time looking at them, each in turn. Too many, he said. If you're just one cell, there are too many of you. If you're more than one cell, you've compromised yourselves. A lanky bald woman sat up straighter. She wore the implants of a remote operator of a vacuum utility bot, but had none of the distracted look that operators usually sported. We are moving to take this station in 48 hours, she said. We are past the point of secrecy. We are ready to join the free communes. The scar-faced man would be off the station in just a few hours. He idly wondered how many of the people he could see would be dead in two days' time. He wondered if they would succeed. Another woman, this one dressed in the clean lines of an administrative aide, said, Is she really here? There was a clanking noise from above, and the scar-faced man held up his hand to help down the limping figure who appeared out of the darkness. Around them, he heard the stationers reverently murmuring her name, Lizane. At least they weren't calling her Mother the way the last bunch had. Mother of the Revolution. Lizane looked at the stationers with a lot more sympathy than the scar-faced man had. She handed over the data drive they'd brought to him, and he, in turn, handed it to the bald woman. Arbitrator codes, he said, and half the reason they were there was behind them. Then, Lizane drew in a deep breath and started in on the rest of the reason. I knew him. I knew Tane. And I was there the day he started the revolution. And there you go. Wow, Christopher, Christopher, Christopher. Man, just fantastic, fantastic. Andrew, lovely to have you on board, sir. Get more. Get on that mic. What a voice. What a unique voice. Thank you indeed. There you go. Starship Sovers, 750. I just want to jump straight into that story. 715. Man, excellent. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Thank you for listening. 
oceans, I'm a hooning, waiting to be found, and I'm building rockets, and pointing them to the moon, but the work is going slowly, it won't get to you anytime soon, can you reach me, is my signal getting through, turn on your radio, I wanna talk to you.